This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, in his second appearance on this program, we're going to hear Tobias Wolf read Emergency by Dennis Johnson. Georgie's pills were making me feel like a giant helium-filled balloon, but I was wide awake. Emergency was first published in The New Yorker in 1991. Tobias Wolf included it in his 1994 anthology, The Vintage Book of Contemporary Short Stories. Wolf is the author of, among other books, the memoir This Boy's Life and the novel Old School. He is also a writer of short stories, ten of which have appeared in The New Yorker. Welcome back, Toby. It's good to be back, Deborah. Now, last year we taped a podcast on Stephanie Vaughn's story, Dog Heaven, and at that point you said that you also wanted to do this story by Dennis Johnson very much. Why was it so hard to narrow down to one? Well, actually, Deborah. You know, I didn't narrow it down to one, did I? I narrowed it down to exactly. two. Exactly. <laughs> and you uh, you rationed me. So I, I had to come back and do this one. And I actually have some others I want to do, too. <laughs> so uh, there's a line of me waiting outside your door to read stories. With Stephanie Vaughn, part of the fun of that podcast was, in a sense, rediscovering someone who had somewhat fallen out of public eye. This story by Dennis Johnson, it's a completely different situation. In fact... I've had three other writers ask to do this very story. Oh, isn't that um, something? Well, I put it on hold for you. Thank you. So it's it's a more uh, it's it's a much more popular and, and better known story. It's a classic, absolutely. It's one of those stories. Uh, oh, I don't know. Say like Carver's Cathedral that everyone knows. Every person who fancies herself literate that I'm acquainted with knows this story and relishes the moments in it. A story like this becomes part of your own memory, as if it happened to you. Well, it's funny to call it a classic when you think back to, to Dennis Johnson's stories about how he how he came to write the collection uh, Emergency appeared in, which was Jesus' son, where he, to, in his mind, he was just sort of writing down some anecdotes and bar stories he'd told, and not not necessarily constructing this as a, as a masterwork of literature. Which is a good lesson in the folly of trying to plumb writers' intentions, isn't it? Because, you know, a writer might intend to sit down and write a classically proportioned uh, story and have the themes of the story all in mind and write something absolutely forgettable. And yet, uh, Dennis, if you're to trust his account of things in writing this story, almost happened on this. And you know, I, I, I think that's that's kind of a pattern in the lives of writers. Now, before he wrote Jesus' Son and uh, Emergency, he'd written a few books of poetry and a number of novels. What was the first work of Dennis Johnson's that you came across? He had a story in The Atlantic uh, when he was still an undergraduate at uh, Iowa that I remembered reading. I didn't know him at the time. I happened to be living in Arizona back in the late 70s, and I was a jurist on a panel that was choosing people to teach in the prisons, and they gave us the application materials of some people who who, who wanted to do this, and there was a collection of poems in there by uh, Dennis Johnson that completely blew me away and that later made up a lot of uh, what became his wonderful book of poems, The Incognito Lounge. Uh, and that was when I really started reading him intensely, and I just fell in love with his work. I have been in love with Dennis Johnson's work ever since. In terms of listening to the story you're about to read, drugs are very central to it. 
as are emergencies, as we'll hear. Is there anything else that we should be listening for that we should know about before you start? Well, there's this sense of uh, mortality hanging over the story. It's a story that moves in extremely unpredictable ways. Things seem to happen almost out of the blue, one thing after another. But I think it really holds together beautifully, not just because of the tone, but because of that kind of thread of the sense of of, of mortality that runs uh, and passing time that, that runs right through the center of it. We'll talk more about Dennis Johnson after the story. Now here's Tobias Wolf reading Emergency. I'd been working in the emergency room for about three weeks, I guess. This was in 1973, before the summer ended. With nothing to do on the overnight shift but batch the insurance reports from the daytime shifts, I just started wandering around, over to the coronary care unit, down to the cafeteria, etc., looking for Georgie the orderly, a pretty good friend of mine. He often stole pills from the cabinets. He was running over the tiled floor of the operating room with a mop. Are you still doing that, I said? Jesus, there's a lot of blood here, he complained. Where? The floor looked clean enough to me. What the hell were they doing in here, he asked me. They were performing surgery, Georgie, I told him. There's so much goop inside of us, man, he said and it all wants to get out. He leaned his mop against a cabinet. What are you crying for? I said. I didn't understand. He stood still, raised both arms slowly behind his head, and tightened his ponytail. Then he grabbed the mop and started making broad, random arcs with it, trembling and weeping and moving all around the place really fast. What am I crying for? He said. Jesus! Wow! Oh, boy! Perfect! I was hanging out in the ER with fat, quivering nurse. One of the family service doctors that nobody liked came in looking for Georgie to wipe up after him. Where's Georgie? this guy asked. Georgie's in O.R., nurse said. Again? No, nurse said. Still. Still? Doing what? Cleaning the floor. Again? No, nurse said again. Still. Back in O.R., Georgie dropped his mop and bent over in the posture of a child soiling its diapers. He stared down with his mouth open in terror. He said, What am I going to do about these fucking shoes, man? Whatever you stole, I said, I guess you already ate it all, right? Listen to how they squish, he said, walking around carefully on his heels. Let me check your pockets, man, I said. He stood still a minute, and I found his stash. I left him two of each, whatever they were. Shift is about half over, I told him. Good, because I really, really, really need a drink, he said. Will you please help me get this blood mopped up? Around 3.30 a.m., a guy with a knife in his eye came in, led by Georgie. I hope you didn't do that to him, nurse said. Me? Georgie said. No, he was like this. My wife did it, the man said. The blade was buried to the hilt in the outside corner of his left eye. It was a hunting knife kind of thing. Who brought you in, nurse said. Nobody. I just walked down. It's only three blocks, the man said. Nurse peered at him. 
We'd better get you lying down. Okay, I'm certainly ready for something like that, the man said. She peered a bit longer into his face. Is your other eye, she said, a glass eye? It's plastic or something artificial like that, he said. And you can see out of this eye, she asked, meaning the wounded one. I can see, but I can't make a fist out of my left hand because this knife is doing something to my brain. My God, nurse said. I guess I'd better get the doctor, I said. There you go, nurse agreed. They got him lying down, and Georgie says to the patient, Name? Terence Weber. Your face is dark, Georgie said. I can't see what you're saying. Georgie, I said. What are you saying, man? I can't see. Nurse came over, and Georgie said to her, His face is dark. She leaned over the patient. How long ago did this happen, Terry? She shouted down into his face. Just a while ago. My wife did it. I was asleep, the patient said. Do you want the police? He thought about it and finally said, Not unless I die. Nurse went to the wall intercom and buzzed the doctor on duty, the family service person. Got a surprise for you, she said over the intercom. He took his time getting down the hall to her because he knew she hated family service and her happy tone of voice could only mean something beyond his competence and potentially humiliating. He peeked into the trauma room and saw the situation. The clerk, that is, me, standing next to the orderly, Georgie, both of us on drugs, looking down at a patient with a knife sticking up out of his face. What seems to be the trouble, he said. The doctor gathered the three of us around him in the office and said, Here's the situation. We've got to get a team here, an entire team. I want a good eye man, a great eye man, the best eye man. I want a brain surgeon, and I want a really good gas man. Get me a genius. I'm not touching that head. I'm just going to watch this one. I know my limits. We'll just get him prepped and sit tight. Orderly. Do you mean me, Georgie said? Should I get him prepped? Is this a hospital, the doctor said. Is this the emergency room? Is that a patient? Are you the orderly? I dialed the hospital operator and told her to get me the eye man and the brain man and the gas man. Georgie could be heard across the hall, washing his hands and singing a Neil Young song that went, Hello, cowgirl in the sand. Is this place at your command? That person is not right, not at all, not one bit, the doctor said. As long as my instructions are audible to him, it doesn't concern me, nurse insisted, spooning stuff up out of a little Dixie cup. I've got my own life and the protection of my family to think of. Well, okay, okay, don't chew my head off, the doctor said. The eye man was on vacation or something while the hospital's operator called around to find someone else just as good. The other specialists were hurrying through the night to join us. I stood around looking at charts and chewing up more of Georgie's pills. Some of them tasted the way urine smells. Some of them burned. Some of them tasted like chalk. Various nurses and two physicians who'd been tending somebody in ICU were hanging out down here with us now. 
Everybody had a different idea about exactly how to approach the problem of removing the knife from Terence Weber's brain. But when Georgie came in from prepping the patient, from shaving the patient's eyebrow and disinfecting the area around the wound and so on, he seemed to be holding the hunting knife in his left hand. The talk just dropped off a cliff. Where, the doctor asked finally, did you get that? Nobody said one thing more, not for quite a long time. After a while, one of the ICU nurses said, Your shoelace is untied. Georgie laid the knife on a chart and bent down to fix his shoe. There were twenty more minutes left to get through. How's the guy doing? I asked. Who? Georgie said. It turned out that Terence Weber still had excellent vision in the one good eye an acceptable motor and reflex, despite his earlier motor complaint. His vitals are normal, nurse said. There's nothing wrong with the guy. It's one of those things. After a while, you forget it's summer. You don't remember what the morning is. I'd worked two doubles with eight hours off in between, which I'd spent sleeping on a gurney in the nurse's station. Georgie's pills were making me feel like a giant helium-filled balloon, but I was wide awake. Georgie and I went out to the lot, to his orange pickup. We lay down on a stretch of dusty plywood in the back of the truck, with the daylight knocking against our eyelids and the fragrance of alfalfa thickening on our tongues. I want to go to church, Georgie said. Let's go to the county fair, I said. I'd like to worship, I would, Georgie said. They have these injured hawks and eagles there from the Humane Society, I said. I need a quiet chapel about now. Georgie and I had a terrific time driving around. For a while, the day was clear and peaceful. It was one of the moments you stay in, to hell with all the troubles of before and after. The sky is blue and the dead are coming back. Later in the afternoon, with sad resignation, the county fair bears its breasts. A champion of the drug LSD, a very famous guru of the love generation, is being interviewed amid a TV crew off to the left of the poultry cages. His eyeballs look like he bought them in a joke shop. It doesn't occur to me, as I pity this extraterrestrial, that in my life I've taken as much acid as he has. After that, we got lost. We drove for hours, literally hours, but we couldn't find the road back to town. Georgie started to complain. That was the worst fair I've been to. Where were the rides? They had rides, I said. I didn't see one ride. A jackrabbit scurried out in front of us, and we hit it. There was a merry-go-round, a Ferris wheel, and a thing called the hammer that people were bent over vomiting from after they got off, I said. Are you completely blind? What was that? A rabbit, I said. Something thumped. You hit him. He thumped. Georgie stood on the brake pedal. Rabbits do. He threw the truck in reverse and zigzagged back toward the rabbit. Where's my hunting knife? He almost ran over the poor animal a second time. We'll camp in the wilderness, he said, 
In the morning, we'll breakfast on its haunches. He was waving Terence Weber's hunting knife around in what I was sure was a dangerous way. In a minute, he was standing at the edge of the fields, cutting the scrawny little thing up, tossing away its organs. I should have been a doctor, he cried. A family in a big dodge, the only car we'd seen for a long time, slowed down and gawked out the windows as they passed by. The father said, What is it, a snake? No, it's not a snake, Georgie said. It's a rabbit with babies inside. Babies, the mother said, and the father sped the car forward over the protests of several little kids in the back. Georgie came back to my side of the truck with his shirt front stretched out in front of him as if he were carrying apples in it or some such, but they were, in fact, slimy miniature bunnies. No way I'm eating those things, I told him. Take them, take them, I gotta drive, take them, he said, dumping them in my lap and getting in on his side of the truck. He started driving along faster and faster with a look of glory on his face. We killed the mother and saved the children, he said. It's getting late, I said. Let's get back to town. You bet. Sixty, seventy, eighty-five, just topping ninety. These rabbits better be kept warm, I said. One at a time, I slid the little things in between my shirt buttons and nestled them against my belly. They're hardly moving, I told Georgie. We'll get some milk and sugar and all that, he said, and we'll raise them up ourselves. They'll get as big as gorillas. The road we were lost on cut straight through the middle of the world. It was still daytime, but the sun had no more power than an ornament or a sponge. In this light, the truck's hood, which had been bright orange, had turned a deep blue. Georgie let us drift to the shoulder of the road, slowly, slowly, as if he'd fallen asleep or given up trying to find his way. What is it? We can't go on. I don't have any headlights, Georgie said. We parked under a strange sky with a faint image of a quarter moon superimposed on it. There was a little wood beside us. This day had been dry and hot, the buck pines and what all simmering patiently. But as we sat there smoking cigarettes, it started to get very cold. The summer's over, I said. That was the year when Arctic clouds moved down over the Midwest and we had two weeks of winter in September. Do you realize it's going to snow? Georgie asked me. He was right. A gun-blue storm was shaping up. We got out and walked around idiotically. The beautiful chill, that sudden crispness, and the tang of evergreen stabbing us. The gusts of snow twisted themselves around our heads while the night fell. I couldn't find the truck. We just kept getting more and more lost. I kept calling, Georgie, can you see? And he kept saying, see what? See what? The only light visible was a streak of sunset flickering below the hem of the clouds. We headed that way. We bumped softly down a hill toward an open field that seemed to be a military graveyard, filled with rows and rows of austere, identical markers over soldiers' graves. 
I'd never before come across this cemetery. On the farther side of the field, just beyond the curtains of snow, the sky was torn away, and the angels were descending out of a brilliant blue summer, their huge faces streaked with light and full of pity. The sight of them cut through my heart and down the knuckles of my spine, and if there'd been anything in my bowels, I would have messed my pants from fear. Georgie opened his arms and cried out, "'It's the drive-in, man!' "'The drive-in?' I wasn't sure what these words meant. "'They're showing movies in a fucking blizzard!' Georgie screamed. "'I see. I thought it was something else,' I said. We walked carefully down there and climbed through the busted fence and stood in the very back. The speakers, which I'd mistaken for grave markers, muttered in unison. Then there was tinkly music, of which I could very nearly make out the tune. Famous movie stars rode bicycles beside a river, laughing out of their gigantic, lovely mouths. If anybody had come to see this show, they'd left when the weather started. Not one car remained, not even a broken-down one from last week, or one left here because it was out of gas. In a couple of minutes, in the middle of a whirling square dance, the screen turned black. The cinematic summer ended, the snow went dark, there was nothing but my breath. "'I'm starting to get my eyes back,' Georgie said in another minute. A general grayness was giving birth to various shapes, it was true. But which ones are close, and which ones are far off, I begged him to tell me. By trial and error, with a lot of walking back and forth in wet shoes, we found the truck and sat inside it, shivering. Let's get out of here, I said. We can't go anywhere without headlights, Georgie said. We've got to get back. We're a long way from home. No, we're not, Georgie said. We must have come 300 miles. We're right outside town, fuckhead, Georgie said. We've just been driving around and around. This is no place to camp, I said. I hear the interstate over there. We'll just stay here until it gets late, Georgie said. We can drive home late. We'll be invisible. We listened to the big rigs going from San Francisco to Pennsylvania along the interstate, like shutters down a long hacksaw blade, while the snow buried us. Eventually, Georgie said, We better get some milk for those bunnies. We don't have milk, I said. We'll mix sugar up with it, Georgie said. Will you forget about this milk all of a sudden? They're mammals, man. Forget about those rabbits, I said. Where are they, anyway? Georgie said. You're not listening to me. I said, forget the rabbits. Where are they? The truth was, I'd forgotten all about them, and they were dead. They slid around behind me and got squashed, I said tearfully. They slid around behind? He watched while I pried them out from behind my back. I picked them out, one at a time, and held them in my hands, and we looked at them. There were eight. They weren't any bigger than my fingers, but everything was there. Little feet, eyelids, even whiskers. Deceased, I said. Georgie asked, does everything you touch turn to shit? 
Does this happen to you every time? No wonder they call me fuckhead, I said. It's a name that's going to stick, Georgie said. I realized that. Fuckhead is going to ride you to your grave. I just said so. I agreed with you in advance, I said. Or maybe that wasn't the time it snowed. Maybe it was the time we slept in the truck and I rolled over on the bunnies and flattened them. It doesn't matter. What's important for me to remember now is that early the next morning, the snow was melted off the windshield and the daylight woke me up. A mist covered everything and, with the sunshine, was beginning to grow sharp and strange. The bunnies weren't a problem yet, or they'd already been a problem and were already forgotten, and there was nothing on my mind. I felt the beauty of the morning. I could understand how a drowning man might suddenly feel a deep thirst being quenched, or how the slave might become a friend to his master. Georgie slept with his face right on the steering wheel. I saw bits of snow resembling an abundance of blossoms on the stems of the drive-in speakers. No, revealing the blossoms that were already there. A bull elk stood still in the pasture beyond the fence, giving off an air of authority and stupidity, and a coyote jogged across the pasture and faded away among the saplings. That afternoon, we got back to work in time to resume everything as if it had never stopped happening and we'd never been anywhere else. The Lord, the intercom said, is my shepherd. It did that each evening, because this was a Catholic hospital. Our Father, who art in heaven, and so on. Yeah, yeah, nurse said. The man with the knife in his head, Terence Weber, was released around supper time. They'd kept him overnight and given him an eye patch. All for no reason, really. He stopped off at ER to say goodbye. Well, those pills they gave me make everything taste terrible, he said. It could have been worse, nurse said. Even my tongue. It's just a miracle you didn't end up sightless, or at least dead, she reminded him. The patient recognized me. He acknowledged me with a smile. I was peeping on the lady next door while she was out there sunbathing, he said. My wife decided to blind me. He shook Georgie's hand. Georgie didn't know him. Who are you supposed to be? He asked Terence Weber. Some hours before that, Georgie had said something that had suddenly and completely explained the difference between us. We'd been driving back toward town, along the old highway, through the flatness. We picked up a hitchhiker, a boy I knew. We stopped the truck and the boy climbed slowly up out of the fields as out of the mouth of a volcano. His name was Hardy. He looked even worse than we probably did. We got all messed up and slept in the truck all night, I told Hardy. I had a feeling, Hardy said. Either that or, you know, driving a thousand miles. That too, I said. Or you're sick or diseased or something. Who's this guy? Georgie asked. This is Hardy. He lived with me last summer. I found him on the doorstep. What happened to your dog? I asked Hardy. 
He's still down there. Yeah, I heard you went to Texas. I was working on a bee farm, Hardee said. Wow, do those things sting you? Not like you'd think, Hardee said. You're part of their daily drill. It's all part of a harmony. Outside, the same identical stretch of ground repeatedly rolled past our faces. The day was cloudless, blinding. But Georgie said, Look at that, pointing straight ahead of us. One star was so hot it showed, bright and blue, in the empty sky. I recognized you right away, I told Hardy. But what happened to your hair? Who chopped it off? I hate to say. Don't tell me, I said. They drafted me. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I'm AWOL. I'm bad AWOL. I got to get to Canada. Oh, that's terrible, I said to Hardy. Don't worry, Georgie said. We'll get you there. How? Somehow. I think I know some people. Don't worry. You're on your way to Canada. That world. These days, it's all been erased, and they've rolled it up like a scroll and put it away somewhere. Yes, I can touch it with my fingers, but where is it? After a while, Hardy asked Georgie, What do you do for a job? And Georgie said, I save lives. That was Tobias Wolf reading Emergency by Dennis Johnson, first published in The New Yorker in 1991, and collected in Jesus' Son, out in paperback from Picador. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. 
Toby, what I what I notice most about this story is the kind of hallucinatory pacing of it all. You you mentioned earlier this sense of time passing in odd ways. Not only is this narrator just tripping through the entire story, but we kind of feel as if we were too. You know, you every everything you experience in the story has this kind of heightened sensory alertness. I can't imagine how difficult it could be to capture that sort of surreality in in writing. Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the really hard things to do is to write well about people drinking, uh, to write well about people on drugs. The tendency is to somehow uh, take that as a license to descend into chaos and formlessness. And here, it's all bound together in tone and in structure. It's beautifully knitted, I think, this story. And Mm -hmm. the characters are just so vivid. Even the cameo of the doctor coming down for that little brief moment, we get a, just an absolutely vivid picture of that doctor. The doctor and the nurse and the And the nurse and yeah. how over his head this doctor is uh, in this whole thing and, you know, snapping out orders like Dr. Killed there. I want the best eye man because <laughs> he sure as hell isn't going to do it. <laughs> Isn't it funny? I mean, it, it's it, it's a miserable situation if you think about it. These two men wandering around in a hospital, totally stoned, a doctor who's completely out of his depth, people coming in with with you know on death's door, and this is and this is <laughs> and this, this is what greets them. <laughs> this is what greets them. It's like a house of horrors, yeah. and uh, and the and the language and the the strange transitions uh, in the story. It's an enormously funny story, and yet never at the cost of of this kind of pulse of mortality that keeps beating beneath it. It's, you know, it's never not a serious story either. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's, you're talking about the consistency of it, but at the same time, there's this incredible incongruity throughout the story with this gruesomeness on one side and, and kind of slapstick on the other. You know, I think about the scene with the graveyard where he, he thinks he's, well, with the drive-in where he thinks he's seeing a graveyard, the angels yeah. are coming down over it. Yeah. And yet, the description is just full of exclamation points. It's sort of naive. It's, oh, death. It's so exciting. Yeah. You know? Everything is kind of in this happy tone. That's such an exquisite scene there with, that, with you know, the sense of these angels descending, you know, full of pity. And what is imagined there? Would that be really more miraculous than, in a sense, what he's actually seeing? I mean, imagine Mm -hmm. this, a drive-in showing this in the middle of of a blizzard. And, you know, (laughs) take your pick, you know. They're both miracles in their way. Yeah. And they compel a kind of uh, awe and reverence, you know, just the way he describes the light under the hem of the clouds and, you know, that sense of all this darkness being shot through here and there with light. I just, I I love his touch in this story. Do you think that there's a sense of morality to the story? I mean, there's, on the one hand, there's, there's absolutely no judgment of these guys for stealing drugs or, or sort of putting the patient's life in jeopardy. But at the same time, there is this underlying sense of, of light and dark. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that there's any sort of deducible morality, if you will, from mm-hmm. this. It couldn't be paraphrased. It's more a sense of of the consciousness of, of, of things passing away and the desire somehow, anyhow, drugs being the agency here in some ways, to get your hands around life before it slips away. And, you know, that's a kind of morality too, but it's of a different order. Mm-hmm. If you had to say, what, what do you think is the emergency here? Or are there many? 
I think there are many, yeah. It's one after another. Yeah. Uh, the emergency is that something is slipping away from us. And it's like the story wants to jolt us into looking around and seeing the miraculous all around us and, in a sense, wanting to take that knife out of our eye. And, you know, I, it's a stretch, perhaps, to say that. But if I had to, I guess that, that, that's probably where I'd go. Mm-hmm. I wish you could hear Dennis. I've heard Dennis Johnson read this story and... He captures it so well in his own rhythms and voice. I feel like a pale imitation doing it, but uh, <laughs> but I really had fun reading the story. Well, I love he, the story. He did a great job in the in the movie of Jesus's Son. Did you ever see the movie? You know, I didn't. Um, uh, well, he, he has a cameo as the guy with the knife in his eye. Well, I'm going to go home and order it right now. I never even <laughs> knew they'd made a movie of it. Oh yeah, it came out about oh, seven eight years ago. Oh my lord, how did I miss that? I must have been. Uh, well, anyway, now the the whole issue of I save lives, and Georgie saying I save lives, and that being the big difference between them. What do you think we're supposed to make of that? I mean, Georgie, well, maybe he saved a life. Maybe he saved the the guy with the knife in his eye, but he he killed the rabbit, and he's not he, he's not really saving anyone. And and uh, <laughs> well, he thinks. I mean, we this story takes place in the theater of uh, fuckheads mind, and Georgie has a theater going in his mind too, and he's. In his theater, he saves lives. And indeed, he has just made a promise to save this young man's life, to get him to Canada. He says, I think I, I, think I know some people. <laughs> and he's not going to get him to Canada, but he no. thinks he is at that moment. And he thinks that by doing that, he's going to save his life. You know, it's like at the end of, uh, of Lady with Pet Dog when, when Gurov and Anna are standing in their little tawdry room in, in Moscow and he's... You know, you know this affair isn't going to work out. Chekhov knows better than any of us that this affair isn't going to work out. But he leaves the story at the moment when Gurov is actually imagining that it's going to work out. There's almost a, a sense of uh, of joy at the end of that story, even though the reader knows perfectly well mm-hmm. that it isn't. And it's the same with this story. I mean, that wonderful declaration at the end, <laughs> I save lives. Yeah. Dennis Johnson is content to leave him with that wonderful moment, uh, you know, of dignity and hope and triumph even. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesus's son, as we said, it came out after several other books, but to some extent it's the, it's the book that made Johnson's career and that, that people really remember. Of course, uh, last year he had Tree of Smoke, which won the National yeah. Book Award and, and has also done incredibly well. But, but Jesus's son was sort of came out at, at a certain time and a certain culture, and it really struck a nerve. Yes, it did. Why do you think that was? I don't know, Deborah. It's impossible for me to say why. Certain, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I think to say, well, he really caught that whole moment at the fag end of the 60s with people strung out on drugs and Vietnam winding to a close, but still killing people and a sense of powerlessness in the face of, of that war and kind of trying to find this cultural explanation for the importance of a of a group of stories. Uh, finally, it, it, do, it doesn't answer the question. The answer lies in the art, just as with, you know, you can talk about Carver's work and say, well, he expresses the great, uh, you know, silent frustrations of the lower and sinking still lower middle class. And, and that doesn't answer the question about why people respond to Carver either. It's in, in yeah. both writers, it's, it's humanity, but it, in the end, it's the art. Yeah, it's, it comes down to the paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Toby. Oh, it's been fun, Deborah. Maybe we'll do it again. I'd love to. You know, I have a zillion <laughs> stories. You can read Emergency and every story ever published in the magazine in the complete archive on our website, newyorker.com. The archive is free to New Yorker subscribers. Tobias Wolff's latest book is Our Story Begins, New and Selected Stories, now out in paperback from Vintage. In a previous fiction podcast, you can hear him read Dog Heaven by Stephanie Vaughn. Also, in another previous program, T.C. Boyle reads Wolf's story, Bullet in the Brain. You can download these programs and more in the iTunes Store, where you can also subscribe to the Fiction Podcast. Just type New Yorker into the iTunes search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.